Um, turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 35. We have been working our way through the book of Job. And um, as uh, most people understand, um, the book of Job is about faith in the midst of suffering. I think, that, I think that's not just explicit, but obvious. What most people don't appreciate is that the book of Job doesn't necessarily give us just simple how-tos. It doesn't just come at you with, okay, you know, you're suffering, this is what you do. You know, this is how you fix it. It doesn't give us a simple explanation. I know you're suffering, but everything has a purpose, right? God has a plan. He does. But His purposes, His plans may not work as linearly, as obviously, as directly as our motivations, our purposes, our plans may work. What it leaves us with is the question of the battle of faith in the midst of, of struggle or pain. What does it look like when the faithful are struggling? That's the person of Job. And I think what we have watched in Job is kind of this digression, right? And we'll talk about that, especially this morning. But he began so strong, and little by little, it's been wearing thin on him. His pain, his loss, the accusations of close friends, like all of that has been wearing in on him, so that by the time we get to these chapters in uh, Job 32 onward, right, the, the, um, the, the four, I kept saying, I think last week, the three, right, um, I think I was saying that, speeches of Elohim, there's four. So don't, don't forget the fourth one. We'll get there later, right? But there's four speeches of Elihu. And, and if, you, uh, if you accept my premise that Elihu speaks on behalf of God, kind of like John the Baptist spoke before Jesus arrives on the scene, it's the way that the book of Job is arrayed. Remember that there's three friends, and each of them in turn will speak something, right? Suddenly jabbing at Job. And, and in the three cycles of each friend speaking, their accusations become more and more personal and intense. And as that's going on, Job responds in kind to each time each friend speaks. So it is kind of a, a, a dialogue, if you will, right? Not quite a debate, because they're, they're not underlying and addressing exactly verbatim, word for word, blow for blow. But they're speaking in generalities, and, but Job is always responding to the one that's speaking, especially if he's saying, I think you're mistaking, right? What, what, what is my issue? My issue is not that I've sinned and deserved this, even though that's what his friends are accusing him of. So after those series of, of questions and answers, right? After those series of dialogue, then we get to Elihu. After Job has said his final piece, his friends have nothing else to say, Elihu speaks, and after four cycles of speeches, each of them clearly hallmarked as Elihu then answered, Elihu then speaks, Elihu then answers. So you know that it's a new speech. Job doesn't respond to any of them. And I'll suggest to you that part of that reason might be that Job is hearing the truth of something that he does already know. This is a man of faith. He's a man of deep and residing and resonating in true faith. God affirms that from the very beginning and he reaffirms that at the very end. But along the way, that faith is shrinking. It has been chipped away by accusations and by pain. And Elihu 
is speaking into that space that is both confrontational. Let me say this, all right, because there are many um, scholars who take Elihu as being kind of this brash upstart, speaking pretty much the same things as his friends. And it could sound like that because Elihu, he does not hold back. He speaks strongly. He speaks frankly. But I think, I think if we read him right, he is speaking on behalf of God to say, where, where has your faith faded? Where has it gone? Are you thinking about yourself and your thoughts, your points, your experience, or are you looking to who God is? And that's exactly what Elihu would try to do um, in Job 35. Because if you can lift Job's eyes, then Job will recall why it is he's a worshiper in the first place. Not because God is good. Not because life is painless. Not because God has given us every answer so that we have everything in our intellectual capacities to know exactly why everything takes place. But because God is still God. So if Elihu is a prophet, he is speaking on behalf of God to confront where Job, who hasn't sinned before the suffering, but is now beginning to wander into attitudes of sin because of suffering. And he's drawing him back. And I think that's why Job doesn't respond. He's contemplating what Elihu has to say. And then before Job can respond, or anyone else can say anything to the young man, God himself come on the scene and speak to Job. So like John the Baptist, almost like a prophet that comes to prepare the people, I think that's Elihu's point in the book of Job. He comes out of nowhere. He speaks on behalf of God. He has strong things to say, but helpful in preparing Job for what the Lord himself will say to him. All that is kind of an intro to what we're looking at this morning. And uh, we have so far in the two um, in the two. Uh, sermons or speeches of Elihu, he has addressed Job's concern, his complaint, that God will not answer me. He will not speak to me. He will not come down and tell me why this is happening. God will not talk. And in chapter 32 and 33, Elihu was very, very strong in stating that God does hear you. He's just not obligated to speak. And his lack of speaking to you is, is that you are looking for a particular answer to everything that has gone wrong. But God does speak to you. If you'll listen to Him, if you'll hear Him, if you'll see what He has to say about you, about your life, and who He is. And in uh, last week, we looked at, was it last week? It was last week, right? We looked at chapter 34, and, and Job's complaint there was that God is not fair. And his whole point is God is only fair. He is only righteous. He is only good. He only does what is excellent. In your small perspective, in your small corner of life and existence, cannot determine the goodness or the fairness of God. But do you not, like Job, resonate in moments of crisis that same, those same concerns? It seems like I'm seeking the Lord. He's not giving me an answer why would this happen to me? If you've ever asked the question, why me? That's Elihu speaking to Job in 32 and 33. If you've ever thought to yourself, God, th this isn't fair. 
this isn't, this isn't fair. I, I've, I've sought to please you, and uh, my life is not the way that I thought it would be. It, I, I don't understand. Elihu is speaking to that in Job 34. And today, I think Job's primary question is, what's the point of being good? What's the point of being good? If, you, if you're a worshiper, a worshiper, if you're faithful, attending church on Sundays, if you read your scriptures and you do all this, what's the point if you are as, as vulnerable to every wicked and terrible thing that could happen in this fallen world? What's the point of being good? If you ever thought that, that is exactly what Elihu is trying to, um, uh, trying to argue against this morning in chapter 35. What's the point? What's the point of being good? What's the point of it all? Job is beginning to lose hope, right? That's what that, that, that statement sounds like. It sounds like I, I have no idea why I have been good, why I continue to try to be good. I don't know what the point is. So there's two, I think just two major sections we're looking at. Job's fading hope, it's, it's Elihu pointing out that this is how Job is thinking wrongly about God. And then secondly, um, he would try to conf- confront his fading faith. But I-, I put wounded because I want to always remind ourselves that, that this isn't Job just in kind of the normal default mode. This is Job under extreme suffering. And his faith is wounded, as is ours on occasion. As you sit here, Right? You are sitting next to someone who is probably going through something, something that they haven't revealed to you. And you yourself, as you sit here, if you think about it, there's probably some amount of stress, some amount of difficulty, some amount of something that you're going through. That is not unusual. In fact, that is quite usual for human beings. We put on a happy face, right? We dress up, we show up to church, and we try to be pleasant. And it's understandable and good. But listen, we struggle. That is life in a broken and sinful world. This is not our permanent eternity. This, praise the Lord, it's not, right? But this is not the new heavens and the new earth. That's to come. So in this life, we should expect at some point that there will be tragedy, that there will be pain, there will be suffering. And I think Elihu's right um, instruction, um, encouragement, is to look to someone greater than yourself. It, he, I think he rightly identifies that everything comes from the overly self-focused, woe is me kind of mentality that every sinner falls into. And that's how he would try to restore, um, or he'll, 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 um, he will rebuke Job's fading hope. But let's, uh, let's take a moment. We'll read this passage. It's nice and short. And then we'll um, come back and unpack it. This is Job chapter 35, the third speech of Elihu. And Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God that you ask what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, 
What do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is my God? Where is God, my maker? Who gives songs in the night? Who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not have God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him, and you are waiting for him. And now because his anger does not punish, and he does not take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies his words without knowledge. Let's pray. Father, we we pray for the teaching of your scriptures this morning. We thank you for the songs that remind us of the faithfulness of our God in salvation. Lord, help us to broaden our perspective, to not merely be narrowly focused on our own circumstance and situations, but to see, Lord, like the greatness of your eternality, how you, in your infinite mercy and love, have sent your Son to rescue us from our sin. And Lord, help us to see beyond ourselves and to look for something that is greater than ourselves and and to be mindful that we could be so self-absorbed even in the way that we're trying to explain and understand our complaints that we could speak words that are empty, multiply words without knowledge. Help us instead, Lord, to find our journey back in your fold, trusting, depending, knowing, and finding our contentment. Not not because you have done only good things in our lives, but because you are still God, and you are worthy, and you have given to us the greatest single thing that we can have in our life. So help us embrace your salvation, your forgiveness, your grace to us, it may be sufficient, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we be- begin chapter 35 with Job's fading hope. So as Elohim has continuously done, he'll frame whatever he's going to say in what Job has already said. Sometimes he summarizes Job. Sometimes uh, he quotes him directly. But um, I-, I think when we look carefully, um, he speaks pretty accurately. He speaks of Job's fading hope Wait, what's happening? I think I might have messed up these. Oh, there's a, okay, there you go. You know what? It's because there's no ABC under one. So there's just one point, and that's verses one through four, Job's failing hope. Take a look there. It says, Elihu answered and said, do you think this is just? In other words, Job, do you think it's okay that you're speaking such a way? Do you think that this to be just when you say or do you say It is my right before God that you ask, what advantage have I? Uh, How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Elihu confronts Job for his now kind of fading hope, right? He is claiming, uh, according to Elihu, Job is claiming, right, that 
he is better or, or he has more right in terms of what he is doing than God himself. He's claiming in one sense, whether he, he says it or not, he certainly would not say as a man of faith, even a dwindling faith, he certainly would not say that God is unrighteous. But he is implying that Job has done what is good and excellent and right, and God is being unfair to him. He's claiming that he has a right that God is denying him. And this is a strong shift from the Job that we first encountered right in the opening chapters. In fact, let me walk you through Job's faith journey at this point. When the, when the book of Job opens in chapter 1, the, only, the first things that is said about Job is that he is a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. Right? And he would, we see him offering burnt sacrifices on a regular basis. We take that as not just the act of a worshiper, but a worshiper that recognized the need right, for forgiveness of sins. You're offering an animal, right? This is even before the law, but the understanding is clear that it symbolizes what I deserve. And God, in His righteous wrath, should pour His wrath in taking life. This is the life that I should be laying down because of my sinfulness. But Lord, would you accept this sacrifice? So it is an act of faith that recognizes sin and dependence upon a holy God. All of that, excellent. This is what he does, and it says that he does that continually on a regular basis. And then he loses everything. When everything is taken away, I'm talking about 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, all his possessions, all his earthly abilities to provide for himself and his family probably hundreds of servants as well. And then, of course, his precious seven sons and three daughters. When all of that is taken away in a moment, in an instant, in, in, in an unparalleled tragic moment, how does Job respond, this worshiper of God? Here's Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So we see the upstanding and quite amazing reaction of the heart of faith in Job, right? This chapter 1. By the time we get to the next chapter, we see him as a man of faith still. Job was struck, right? If it wasn't enough to take every earthly possession away, including his family, then now Job is struck with sores from the bottom of his feet, the soles of his feet, to the crown of his head. Like whatever else it is, any moment, every, every time he moves, there is endless and ceaseless pain because of whatever is broken out in terms of his body, to the point that he is exiled out of the city, sitting on a, a heap of ash. And then his wife shows up and says, how much is enough, right? You should curse God and just die. You, sh you should look to the afterlife. In Job 2.10, Job responds to her and says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And his emphasis is not on women, but on the foolish ones, right? You're talking like someone that's foolish. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? 
In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You see this constant statement of his faith and his faith shining through in in very difficult moments. Unless we accuse him of just complete abandonment of faith at some point, even as he is arguing back and forth, right, with these three friends who are accusing him of having some hidden sin, and he's saying, no, I don't have some hidden sin, but I do want to say, I wish I were never born. I wish I was dead. It would be better for me if I had never been born. I wish my life would end. Why doesn't the Lord just take me home? As he's saying all of that, he still recognizes, right, that there's a hope even if he dies. Job 19, 25 to 27 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has, thus, has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. He's saying, I'm going to die. I kind of wish I would die soon. And even though this is hard, I recognize that even after death, I think my Redeemer will stand on this earth, and He'll restore my flesh, and I will see Him. See, he, He is still a man of faith, right? He is still trying in the midst of complaining, in the midst of like this, this slowly degrading hope where he begins with whatever the Lord gives, whatever the Lord takes, it is the Lord. He is the Lord. It is about the Lord. It has become extremely, step by step, more self-focused. Well, I, I wish I had never been born. Why won't God answer me? All right? I cry, I cry out and he won't come. But, is this fair, Lord? Like, why is this happening to me? I see all of these unrighteous and the wicked men, and they're prospering, right? They're doing pretty well. Why is the righteous man suffering? And so you see both this degradation, right, where he is looking from the Lord to himself, and the more he sees of the things of himself, with the help of the accusation of friends, right, um, he finds himself kind of falling in hope and hopelessness. He's, he's slipping from his original position of God can do what God can do. He's losing sight of his purpose. And that's the come he's asking that question, right? What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? He's saying, if I was a sinner, I would have probably received some. If you guys were right, and I had some hidden sin, taking advantage of the poor, taking advantage of young ladies, right? If, I, if, I, if that was my sinful lifestyle, then I would be probably at a similar place in my life. Is, is, it, is it worth it, right? What's the value of following God when everything goes wrong? Job says in Job 34, 9, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. See, there's an erosion of his faith to the point that he has lost hope. And this is what Elihu, I think, rightly identifies. He's saying, Job, you're suffering from a fading faith. You're asking questions like, what's the point of being good? Where have you come? What has happened to you? How has your heart sunk so low? He says, I will answer you. I will answer you and your friends. That's the setup. In verses 1 through 4. Then the confrontation. What can we do about your wounded faith? He begins in verses 5 through 8. 
by saying you've, you've got to stop self-focusing and you've got to look up to God. Look at verse 5. Look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sin, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness a son of man. It's an unusual statement, and it certainly doesn't have like you know the, the comforting graciousness of, oh man, I feel so bad for you. It comes with kind of like this gut punch of saying, hold on a second, Mr. Self-Focus, right? Why don't you look to the heavens and behold? Look at the clouds. Are they not higher than you? His whole point is, who are you in comparison to even the heavens? And the heavens meaning like the sky above us, the stars in the sky. As you look into this infinite universe, right? Everything that is above you and unattainable to you, unreachable to you. They didn't have flying machines that would jet them, right, into the sky. They didn't have rockets that could take them out of our atmosphere. All they knew is you could look up. You have no control of that. You have no control of those. Those are all preset. Those are set by God himself. And his whole point is look to something that is greater than yourself. Because your complaint is, well, what's the point of living good? And he's saying, well, your question is just wrong. Because it's true, if you had sinned, right, you might have been in the same place. But you're thinking of your sin as kind of a deal or a bargain. Or your righteousness as a deal or a bargain. Lord, I did this, right? I deposited this. I demand this to be returned, right? I, I gave you these things. Now where is my thing? We do this all the time with our God. Treat him like he is some kind of, of, of a merchant, a giant, sovereign, spiritual merchant, right? Lord, I gave you these things in my life. Where, where is that, that husband? Where is that wife I've been waiting for? Lord, I've been so faithful. Where is those children? Lord, I have, I have been a faithful follower of you. Why don't you give me a good job and provide? Let me, have a, let me have that life that I expect that all the faithful should have. That's the way that we approach the Lord constantly. And it's false. And this is what Elihu is trying to point out. He's saying, okay, so let's say that you sin. Does that influence, impact, change, or otherwise diminish God? He's saying your sin, if you are sinful, doesn't even hurt him. He is independent of that. And if you are righteous, does that mean that he owes you something? Did you give him something that you should receive it back in your hand, verse 7 says. Your wickedness, what you do in sin, you know, that has to do and impacts other human beings like yourself. Your righteousness and how you live, in the end, influences and impacts only other human beings and yourself. God is God. And if all you could see is myself and my need and my lacking and my pain, he's saying, look up. Do the stars in the skies, there's a sun and the moon, do they alter because you're upset? Because you're righteous or because you're a sinner? God's greatness means that he is so much bigger it, it, theologically we are talking about god's independence 
the, the old Latin term is aseity, which is um, uh, from self, meaning that God is just self-existent, right? He is the great I am who I am of Exodus 3, right? He just is. But when we say God is independent, we don't mean like, you know, like you guys are independent, right? Most of well, the youth group is gone. So, you know, everyone in here hopefully is independent, meaning that you kind of take care of yourself. Mom's not changing your diapers, right? Like, like she knows that you can, you know, do your own thing. She might make you a meal because she's nice to you, right? But you, you can make your own meal, I assume, right? You're looking to, to be gainfully employed and to take care of you and to take care of others potentially. Like you are independent. That's the way we think of independence. But when, when Scripture talks about God's aseity, his independence, his complete lack of need, it means that God has need of nothing, God does not need your righteousness, Job. God does not need your holiness. God does not need your, your, your strong conviction that God is great and that, that I am his servant. He doesn't need that. You could stop existing and it changes God none, none at all. He is completely independent. That, that Sunday school lesson that you had in second grade at a different church, Right? that used to teach you that, you know why God sent Jesus? Because he just needed you. He wanted you so desperately. God is not desperate. But does that mean that he is, right, that he is without love? No, not at all. He is impassable. That's a theological term that means that he doesn't change in terms of his emotions. So you say, well, how can he not change in terms of emotions? I was his enemy at one point, Scripture points out. Then at some point, I was his child. How can he not change in terms of emotions? Wait, did God not know that? Because Ephesians 1 says that he knew me before he laid the foundations of the world. So did he not know that I would be his enemy until this point of conversion and then I would be his child? Nothing is a surprise to him, even your decision of faith or not faith. None of it changes who God is. So I think appropriately so, Elihu's first kind of encouragement, exhortation to Job is to say that, listen, I know your faith is wounded. He doesn't even say that nicely, though, right? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to soften him up for you a little bit. He just says, man, look up, fool. Look up. Because your words are speaking like someone who doesn't believe that there is a God. Look up and see that there is someone greater than yourself. You need to embrace something that is so great and infinite that your life and the details of your life, right? They don't make everything in existence the end-all, be-all of existence. He's encouraging us to stop having that middle school mentality. There's no middle schoolers here, so we could say that right now, right? You know what I mean? Like, like you know, my, my best friend doesn't like my hairdo. My life is over. I, I hate this world, right? right? That middle school mentality, Right? I told that girl I like her. She says she just wants to be friends. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. You're giggling because you guys have been there, right? That mentality like, like God owes me something or life owes me something or things ought to go well for me because I'm a pretty swell guy. It's nonsense. There is a God, creator, sovereign, majestic, he is the end-all purpose of everything, in the unit, including your life. That's the point. Every one of these is really a stop self-focusing 
and see God, but this is the one that he begins with, all right? Job, you could say, what, what have I been righteous for? But you're asking the wrong question. You're implying that if you were righteous, he des- you deserve something. And if you were a sinner, then you would get exactly what you deserve. God doesn't change his mind about anything, right? He is infinitely great. You need to see your smallness in light of who God is. Secondly, right? He says, don't self-pity. Pray. I put beseech because I wanted to put a little bit more oomph into into prayer here, right? Because what what he's saying here in verse 9 is this. He says, consider, right? He says, because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. Now, as you hear the arm of the mighty, you should not hear arm of the almighty, right? This is the arm of the strong, the powerful. Is it true that the powerful human beings oppress less powerful human beings? Absolutely, in all of human history, in the scriptures constantly, right? Because of the multitude of oppressions. Are there oppressed peoples, oppressed by by terrible governments, by wicked humans, by rich landowners right now? Of course. And did I cry out? I assume so. I would, right? If, if I was working some field or working in some factory or being, you know, uh, treated like a, a servant of, you know, some oppressive regime, like, like yeah, I would cry out. It's, it's, it's understandable to cry out. They call for help because of the oppression of the arm of the mighty is what verse 9 is trying to say. Verse 10. But none of them says... Where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? He says, here's the problem, Job. Is there, is there room? Is, there, uh, you know, uh, is it understandable that people are struggling and so they fall into self-pity and they cry out? Of course. Right? Shakespeare said, if you prick us, will we not bleed? I, I only remember that because that was in a Star Trek movie, right? I don't, I don't remember. I, I think that was from Macbeth, but I don't remember, right? I, but I remember from the movie, right? But you, right? Shakespeare's trying to point out this is our mortal frame. This is what we are as human beings. Like if you, if someone punches you, you go, "Whoa, ow!" Right? If they prick you with a with a pin, then you go, "Ouch!" You cry out when there is pain. That is understandable. And he's saying there's multitudes of oppressed people that are crying out. And they cry out because they are being oppressed by someone that is stronger than them. He says, but how many of them are actually praying? How many of them are saying, where is God, my maker? The God that gives song in the night, who teaches more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. I think that last part in verse 11, he's trying to imply that, that don't, don't animals who don't have a soul, who don't consider philosophy or wonder about their purpose, don't they instinctually know to cry out? Has not God taught us more than them? That, that we don't just cry out, but we cry out to one that is greater than ourselves. We look to our maker. I think what, what Elihu is implying is, Job, you've fallen into this pit of self-pity to the point that you've forgotten to pray in faith. Not just pray for rescue, but to actually recognize who God your maker is. 
and to recognize that this is the God who has not just created you, which means that he has your purpose in his hands, but he is also the God who can give you a song in the night. We'll get to that phrase, song in the night, because I love it. But in Jeremiah 2, 6, Jeremiah says kind of a similar thing. He speaks about his people, the people of God, and he says, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. You see what Jeremiah is saying in Jeremiah 2, 6? He's saying, shame on God's people because they have become so self-focused, so self-pitying that they've forgotten to pray in such a way that elevates their faith. They don't bother to pray, where is the Lord? He's not saying you can't say, where is the Lord? He's saying, but where is the Lord who has brought us up from the land of Egypt, led us in a wilderness, a wilderness that human beings don't survive in? Do you remember this is the God that opened the Red Seas? Right? And let us walk across on dry ground. They made, made like snowflake manna far from the sky that you could eat. And to demonstrate how supernatural this was, every morning it would fall and you could collect only a day's worth. More than that, it would rot. But for some reason, on Friday before the Sabbath, there would be twice the amount that you could collect. And it would last through the Sabbath, but it wouldn't fall on the Sabbath. What in the world? What in the world is God? Is in the world. And that's his point. The nation of Israel, according to Jeremiah and Jeremiah 2, has forgotten to pray to the God in faith that has done such miraculous things that he can do anything and everything and all things are in his hands. So stop, stop moaning and complaining about what you have and haven't had and go and pray and remember who God is. To see who God is. I love that phrase, who gives songs in the night. Who gives songs in the night. And that's literally applied in, in Acts 16 to Paul and Silas. Remember, they're in prison and they pray and then they start singing hymns. And the angel comes and rescues them. They're in the midst of probably one of the most circumstantial, darkest moments in their lives. And there they are just singing praises, hymns to the Lord. Right? Psalm 42, 8 says, By day the Lord commands a steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. It seems to echo what Job is, uh, what, um, what Elihu is saying here, that if we would recognize who God is, that he is the creator, that he is in control, and he's the one that gives songs in the night. If there is an elevation of the soul that is possible, if there's worship or praise and thanksgiving that is possible, even in the darkest moment of our lives, it is because there's a God that is worthy of it. Not because you are so strong. Job, it's not because you've lived a righteous life. Job has lived a righteous life, Right? It's not because you have demonstrated faithfulness and, and, and made these wonderful, excellent statements. He has made some wonderful, excellent statements. Statements that we should embrace and be thankful for. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's amazing. And even in spite of all of that, his faith could degrade to be this self-pitying, self-focused, Lord, why is this happening to me? Verse 12 says, there they cry out, talking about these multitudes that are oppressed. They do. They yelp because they have been pricked. But he does not answer. 
But look at the second part of verse 12. Because of the pride of evil men. Because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. The reason why God doesn't answer the prayer of the oppressed, of the pained, of those in circumstantial difficulty, is because of their pride. This is interesting. And I like what Albert Barnes says about it. His point, in summary, is that the pride of our heart, even in affliction, has the capacity to not appeal to God, to not pray. They, they have valued themselves in their independence of spirit to the point that they still do not need God. They're mad at him for not giving him what they want, but they don't need him. We kind of, we kind of made fun of our middle schoolers Then if you move up to high school, right? I don't know how you were in high school. I felt I was independent, but I felt very angry at my parents for not giving me everything that I wanted. And I never saw, right, the inconsistency of that thought. Well, if you're so independent, fool, why don't you go live out on your own, right? That's what I would have answered to myself, that, that young, dumb self in high school. So you, you think you can handle everything and you have all of life's ends? Go ahead. Go, go, go show it. Go do it, right? And no, we have this, this weird mingling of pride that says, says, God, you know, you owe me this. But I'm not going to come to you and, and beg of you. You asking me to beg? Why should I beg? Who are you? And that's the whole question. Who is God? Right? There is this exceeding pride even amongst those that call upon God in their pain and oppression and difficulty. In the midst of suffering, it's possible to say, Lord, this is so hard. Why is this happening to me? And to imply, you know better. You don't remember who I am, Lord? This is Nam Park. Not Nam Lee, there's probably some Nam Lees out there, right? This is Nam Park. Like, Lord, shouldn't better things be happening? Like, it is possible to, to remain prideful even as we connect to the Lord to such a degree that even in our trials, our heart can be wicked, too wicked to acknowledge God for being God and to pray. Praying, as Elohim seems to be implying, right? Um, where's God who is my maker who gives songs in the night praying with an acknowledgement that God can and that God is um, and regardless of what he does whether he gives or he takes blessed be the name of the Lord that prayer is difficult that's a prayer of immense faith sometimes especially if you are concerned about that recent diagnosis or you're worried about that loved one or you get that phone call in the night because something terrible has happened, right? Like, like it is difficult to just sit there and go, blessed be the name of the Lord. But the whole point is we have to still look to the Lord. Verse 13 says, he will not hear, God will not hear or regard the empty cry of false men. The word empty there is that same Hebrew word that means vain. I think we might connect this to Deuteronomy 5.11 where it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain with emptiness. There is something empty or shallow about crying to God generally, but not willing to submit to Him unconditionally. There's something shallow and empty about saying, oh, God is, God is great and He could change my circumstances, but why won't He? Right? 
there's something empty about saying, I want to be a follower of a Christ, but listen, God wants me to have a happy life. So I'm, gonna, I'm trying to balance between all the things that I want to experience in this life and following the Lord wholeheartedly. That's what we're talking about. Pride and vanity that ends up crying out to God, but not really praying, not really beseeching. And that kind of crying out ends up not being an actual prayer. His point is, you've been talking a lot to God, Job, and that's good. But has it been seated in pride and demand? Has it been emptied out by the fact that you expect that God owes you something? Right? As you think about what's the point of living righteous, what's the point of living well in the eyes of God, has it been more about who God is or more about what you get? Because the more it is about what you get or don't get, what you are receiving or not receiving, it, it kind of sounds like it's about you and self-focused on yourself and has nothing to do with the God our, who is our maker and the God that who, can, who can give a song in the darkness of night. Right? Don't self-pity. Go, go, go to God. Third, don't self-truth. Honor God. Again, this is applied to Job, verse 14. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him, and you are waiting for him. Three, three things that Elihu is pointing out are things that Job seems to constantly be saying. That, where is God? I, I am his guy. I have lived well. I have lived righteously and worshipped him. Where is it? I, I don't see him. My case is before him. I'm trying to present my argument. Lord, show up and defend yourself, right? Speak up on your behalf because I am telling you this is my life and you know it. And he says repeatedly, do you remember, when he's talking to his friends, that, that if God would show up to the tribunal, to the court, he would see that I'm, right, I, I'm innocent. He would know that I'm innocent. He's God. He knows. If I know, then he knows even better, right? We would be good. The case is before him. He's, and he says, finally, and you are waiting for him. I, Job is claiming to have been waiting and waiting and waiting, and now he's going to die. God made him wait until it's too late. It's like, Lord, I have a terminal illness. You're the doctor, aren't you? You're not going to show up? I keep calling you. Where are you at? What's happening? Right, so this is Job speaking of the things of the Lord, but speaking of the things of the Lord in ways that, that end up being empty, vain, right? And pompous. Verse 15, And now because his anger does not punish, he does not take much note of transgression. Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. At the heart of what he is saying in verses 14 through 16, Elihu is saying, look, your complaint is that God does not do what he is supposed to do. He, you've kept your end of the bargain. He hasn't kept up his. And you, case in point, verse 15, you feel like because his anger doesn't punish and he does not take much note of transgression. In other words, how unfair is this that the unrighteous flourish while here I am dying? Job 21, verses 7 through 16, this is what Job says. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? 
Their offspring, are, their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. It's the wicked. He says their bull breeds with, without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like flock and their children dance. This is a man who just lost seven sons and three daughters. They sing to the tambourine and lyre and rejoice at the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace and go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Job is saying, man, I don't get it. I don't get you, Lord. Look at me and how I have worshipped and honored you. Look at them. They have everything that I wish was still part of my life, including the blessing of children running around like sheep. What is happening? And in Job's mind, you need to understand, in Job's mind, verse 15, that this is unfair, that you don't even punish the wicked. You're punishing the righteous, right? That implication, right? That is how he is seeing the world. And it's not just how he's seeing the world in his heart. Our mouth reveals what is in our hearts. Jesus said that, and the Proverbs say that. All the Scripture says that. Verse 16, Job opens his mouth in empty talk, and this is what he means by Job speaking empty talk. He's self-truthing. I don't think that's even a word. I, I believe I made that up, right? But he is. Here's a word. He's self-identifying, right? You understand that. He's like creating truth for himself because he believes that he, whether he says it or not, he believes that he's the arbitrator. He gets to determine what is right and what is wrong. And what God is doing is not right. That's why he's saying it's not fair. That's come. he's wondering, and what's the point of me living righteous? What's the point of anything that I've done if God's going to be so capricious about everything that he does? And I think Elihu is reminding him, you're speaking nonsense. How have you become so proud, so self-focused, so self-centered that you're talking without knowledge? The thing is, we can all relate to what he is saying, right? We've been there when we're like, Lord, I don't get it, man. I'm trying to live in a way that honors you, to serve you. And then look at these wicked individuals. They're just flaunting it. They're even making fun of Jesus. And they seem to be flourishing. They seem to be doing well. Shouldn't the, bam, wrath of God calling fire from the sky? Where's all of that stuff, right? We feel like God should make the world after our own appetites. And it's self-truthing. The Lord is not obligated to do anything according to our timing. And we said already that there is truth to the, the, the retributive, retributive, retributive principle, right? What a man sows, he will reap. God is not fooled, right? There is no sin that gets away or, or escapes God's absolute, holy, perfect justice. Where Job is going is where we often go, right? We start proclaiming our own truth. I don't know why this is happening to me. I, I know I deserve better than this. Maybe, maybe we don't even go so far as to say that part. 
but we just kind of complain. We kind of, in our wounded faith, we kind of speak words that we might regret. And this is what Elihu is saying. Your words reveal what is in your heart. You speak out of, out of the, the pride and the arrogance of thinking that you define what is true, what is right, and what is good to happen. God defines what is good and true and what is right to happen. It is the reality of wounded hearts. We always look for someone to blame. God is ultimate, but sometimes it's our family. I would be a more faithful person, a more faithful Christian, if you hadn't raised me like this, Dad. I'd be a much more faithful Christian, you know, if that church, that, that church that I was part of, if they weren't like that. We, we'd all be a much better congregation, a faithful preacher, if, if you were a little bit better preacher, if you're a better leader, right? Like, we, we all have that casting judgment and, you know, like this, this arrogant, right, like, self-truthing kind of like this is what is wrong with our society our world our listen there is an element of truth to all of that there's an element of truth to saying the wicked should be punished and the righteous should be exalted right but in the end that's the lord's to do in his good timing and unless we don't believe in the the, the future and everything that god is planning to do we are diminishing our god we're not honoring god by thinking that we have the final solutions of everything. How different all of this is when we call each other to look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the same way that Elihu to Job is saying, you need to lift your eyes. I get it, your faith is wounded, so you're self-focused, you're kind of self-pitying, you're kind of self-truthing. You're kind of making up your own things as you go. You're, you're saying this is what is right and this is what's not right. This is what people ought to do. This is not what people ought to do, right? And in the midst of that, you need to lift your gaze and see who God is. Yeah, that's the same thing with what the gospel is. When we call you to repentance, it's not because you need to conform to something that I think is so important. We call you to recognize that there is a God and that his justice, his holiness all of that is real, but not just that, but that his love for you is real to the point that he would sacrifice his own son in your place. All of that is looking upward. All of that is seeing God and seeing God in his fullness, not seeing God as a good addition and appendage to my life, but seeing God as being absolute. And when we see God as absolute, then it shrinks us a little bit. And it helps us to find what faith really is. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When we look to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, we find a hope that endures. It's not just for this life, but it's for the life to come. We find a certainty of faith, right? That, that will not find its full rewards here, nor do we expect it. But we think that the Lord will accomplish everything that he has promised to accomplish. And we are constantly, when we're meditating upon what Christ has done, trying to fix our eyes upon him so that the way that we interact in this life is colored and flavored by his love, his grace, his righteousness, and his perfections. We're just trying to do the best we can. And as we do the best we can, we're trying to recognize what is the point point is God 
in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us in opening our eyes to the majesty of who you are. And Lord, I know we barely scratched the surface when we're talking about things like your righteousness, your holiness, your love, your kindness. Whatever we think, Lord, of the great things that you are, you are infinitely and endlessly and perfectly. And for us, we, need, and we know these things only in its limited experiences. So Lord, would you help us to avoid the, the fading hope of Job? Would you help us that, that our faith does not become old? Lord, does not become self-focused and, uh, and overly saturated with what we hope for, what we need, what we want, but that we are renewed regularly to remind ourselves of who you are and that no matter what happens in this life, you love us and that the evidence of your love for us is that you sent your son to die on a cross so that we might be free of sin. We praise you for being our God and for being good and for being absolutely in control and unsurprised by anything. You are our God. Help us to worship you well. In Jesus' name.